You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. If you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9 is where we're going to be at this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Start in verse 4. Paul writing, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way. In him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ, which is basically the gospel. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, because of that, because of the gospel, you do not like any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, I I thank you for this church, Lord. It's your church. It's not my church. It's not reality's church. It's not the city's church. It's your church, Jesus. I thank you for adding to the number of people here through salvation. I thank you for adding to the number here through people coming back to Christ to follow you. I thank you for calling people who love you into the city to live out the gospel in San Francisco. I thank you for this church, Lord. I know this church, though it's young, God, you've done an amazing thing in it so far. And we ask that you would continue what you're doing. As we, as a church, remain submitted to you, Lord. Submitted to your purposes and your will. Submitted to the Spirit of God. I ask you, God, that you would preserve this church. Protect this church. From within and from without. That this church would show San Francisco what it looks like to love Jesus, to follow Christ. I pray that great grace would be given to this church. Lord, we need your grace. And I ask today, as we look at your word, that you would lead us. I ask for your help, God. I come completely empty. I need you. I, we, we, we really need you to, to, to lead us today. I can speak to ears. Lord, you change hearts, Lord. And so I ask for your anointing, God. We look to you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So last week, guys, we began a a new series that we're calling um, Corinthians, the stories uh, from a fledgling urban church, a a young urban church in Corinth. And we talked, we looked at the background of Corinth last week. Now, I don't want to assume anything when we're studying the Bible. As we study the scriptures this morning, I don't want to assume anything. So bear with me when I say that when you open the Bible, you'll notice, if you've ever turned open and grabbed a Bible, you'll notice that there's a lot of different books in the Bible. When I first got my very first Bible, someone gave it to me, it was a student Bible, I turned to the book of Job. Now it's in the middle, you know when you do that, you just turn to the middle of the Bible, or a book, any book? I I did that, and it was the book of Job, I thought I said job. I was like, you could get a job in the Bible, like it tells you how to get a job. And so I read that, and that's actually how I came to know uh, and follow Jesus was through the book of Job, which is really strange. If you've ever read that book, um, 
But that's, that's, how, that's the sovereignty of God. Um, you'll notice that the, 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 the scriptures, the Bible is made up of several, several different books, 66 books to be exact. And the books are made up of several different types of genres. For example, there's poetry and wisdom literature. There's history and narrative. There's apocalyptic writing like the book of Revelation. And, we, and what we have before us is a letter. There's also letters or epistles. This is important to understand when you approach the Bible. That you look at it through the lenses of different genres. And you should read the different books a little bit differently. You don't read poetry like you read history. At least you shouldn't. You don't read a news story like the same way you read Dr. Seuss. You don't read an email like you would read J.R. Tolkien. They're different genres of writing. Now many of the problems that people have with the scriptures, if you have a problem with the Bible, a lot of times the, our problems with the scriptures at first glance can be traced back to this flaw in interpretation and understanding. We're not approaching the books rightly. That being said, not assuming anything, 1 Corinthians is a letter, okay? That's pretty basic. You're like, wow, this is 101. Yes, 1 Corinthians is a letter. It's a letter written by a man named Paul somewhere around the middle of the first century to a church, church in the ancient city of Corinth. Here's a map. We're an official church because last year we used a real map. This is our first map we ever used at a church, as a church last week. Now, Corinth in the middle, if you see it. Now, it's very important to realize this simple fact that you and I are reading a letter when we pick up the book of 1 Corinthians. This is essentially male correspondence between Paul and the church in Corinth. It's back and forth conversation. You are reading someone else's mail when you're reading 1 Corinthians. And in fact, 1 Corinthians isn't even the first letter. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul refers to a previous letter he wrote to Corinth. So we're actually reading 2 Corinthians right now. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul refers to another letter he wrote before 2 Corinthians that he wrote. He said, I wrote it full of distress and anguish of heart with many tears, making 2 Corinthians 4 Corinthians. Now, I'm not trying to confuse you, okay? I don't want you to scribble out first and write second in, in, in your Bible. But this is my point. Here's the point I'm trying to make. You and I are entering into an ongoing conversation. There's already a back and forth conversation, and you're entering into it in the middle you're entering into a conversation between Paul and the church in Corinth. I mean, have you ever walked into a conversation in an awkward point, at an awkward place? Have you ever walked into a conversation where two people are getting kind of heated? You walk in, you're like, okay, I'm going to leave now. This is awkward. This is kind of what we're doing here in 1 Corinthians. This is an ongoing conversation, and Paul is actually getting a kind of heated. He's actually getting kind of angry at the church because they're not understanding the implications of the gospel. So, and we're not just reading, we're not just entering into an ongoing conversation. We're only hearing one side of that conversation. We're only hearing Paul's side. Now the reason why I say all of this is to point out that we have to do our work to understand the background and the context and the occasion of this letter so we understand what's going on. Because you, I told you this last week, Paul offends everyone in this letter. Everyone. Did you read, hopefully you read it this week. You're probably offended. Single men are offended. All women are offended in this book. <laughs> Seriously. Gay, straight, people with money, people who are married. If you have one of those, if you're a, a female and you have one of those fresh, cute, like pixie haircuts, you're going to be offended in this letter. 
Paul even happens to, he manages to offend you if you're a virgin. Even if you're a virgin, he offends you. Paul is one of those reasons why people don't like the Bible. They might get along great with Jesus, but when they get to Paul and his writings, they start finding reasons to say, this is why I don't go to church. This is why I think the Bible is oppressive and regressive. We'll have to do some work to understand what's going on because what Paul is dealing with here is with situational ethics. In this letter, Paul is dealing with situational ethics, meaning Paul, as a pastor and theologian, is bringing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We'll get, we'll get to what that means in a second. He brings the gospel to bear on specific problems and situations that this church is going through. So the church is going through a problem. Paul brings the gospel to bear on that problem. So when Paul writes that he doesn't want women speaking in church, and he does say that, you probably read that, what does that mean? What does it mean that women are allowed to speak in church? Are we to take that at face value and say women can't talk, talk in church ever? Or was he dealing with a specific problem that Corinth was facing? And if he was dealing with a specific problem, what was that problem? And what was the cultural baggage in Corinth around that problem? And how do we apply the solution to that problem for them to us today in San Francisco in 2013? You see how difficult this is getting? This is our task before us. You're going, well, that's your task. No, it's our task. We all have to do this. So I'm going to spend hours and hours of studying time like I do every week. But what you have to do is when you listen, I need you to engage. I need you to think, okay, maybe, maybe if, I'm, if I'm reading this the way I think I'm reading this, maybe there's a different way to see this. And if it is, how does it open up the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's exactly what we're dealing with. So if you're new to the church today, if you've been coming and you've been engaging, we've had several people, my, one of my favorite things to witness here as being a part of this church is when people come to this church and they come from different faith backgrounds or maybe no faith background at all and they're atheists and they'll come to this church and they're like, I'm an atheist or I'm, I'm this background or that background and I don't necessarily believe in Jesus Christ but can I be here and sit and learn? And can I engage? And can I ask questions? And can I be a part of this community? Because I want to know what this is all about. And we say absolutely. And several of those people after being here for months, sometimes even over a year, will come up to us and go, okay, I believe. I've been watching your community. I've been hearing who Jesus is. I want to follow Jesus. If that's you, and we're reading this book, and it's a very difficult book to study and to understand, I want to ask you to sit through the entirety of it. Ask good questions. Go to, be, get, get a part of a small group and ask questions in there. It's okay. We want that to happen here. This is our task before us, and so... By the Spirit of God, this is not only, are, not only are we reading someone else's mail, this is mail to us. This is something that the church of Jesus Christ needs to hear today. So not only are we reading someone else's mail, this is for us today. And here's how I want to go through our text, our text this morning. Grace arrived and grace explained. Now again, two points just like last week, but I'm not going to lie, the second point may have three subpoints. No, I don't know yet. Um, <laughs> Grace arrived and grace explained. First, grace arrived. Paul says in verse 4 that he gives thanks to God for the grace given to the church in Corinth. He goes, I thank God for the grace that God has shown this church. Now, when did that happen? When did grace arrive in Corinth in the form of the gospel preached? 
Well, the church of Corinth was a church plant. The church of Corinth was a church plant. Now, many of you may not know what that means. When Ashley and I, my wife and I, first moved here to San Francisco to start this church and be a part of starting this church, I would tell people at dinner parties and uh, meeting people around the city that I'm a church planter. And blank stares every single time. They had no idea what that means. They're like, so you work at a, you're, you're a gardener at a church? I mean, are you, like, how, how does that, what does that even, what does that mean? And, I, and then I would say, then I came up with this, I, after meeting a lot of people that everybody worked in startups, I'm like, I, I, I'm a part of a startup. Like, <laughs> like, you are, what are you starting up? I'm like, I'm starting up a church. They're like, oh, I get that. Like, they understood that language. <laughs> I'm a part of a startup church, and we're starting this thing up, and we need a lot of angels and funding and all that stuff. Um, <laughs> So they understood, they understood that language. Corinth was exactly that. Corinth was a startup church. Corinth was a a church planted by the Apostle Paul. He went into Corinth and he started this church. Now, Paul, the Apostle, was a converted Jew who had a radical encounter with the risen Christ. When he had a radical encounter with Jesus, he was actually persecuting the church because he was that hardcore of a Jew because, because at the very beginning, Christianity was a sect of Judaism. And radical Jews hated it. They followed Jesus who said he was Messiah, but they didn't believe he was Messiah. So he started persecuting the Christians or the people who followed what was called the way. But once Paul came to see and believe that Jesus is the consummation and the culmination of the story of Israel. Now, if you're Jewish in here, that's a very heavy statement. I encourage you to read the book of Matthew and the book of Acts and see what what I'm talking about, and I would love to talk to you about it. But Paul, when Paul came to see that Christ was the fulfillment, the culmination of the story of Israel, he believed, and he made his way, once he believed in Jesus, he made his way into every synagogue that he could, and he was telling his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters the story of Jesus. Some believed, many didn't believe. And they kicked Paul out of the synagogue again and again and again, until finally, Acts chapter 18. It says this, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. That's the city that we're talking about right now. He went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed with them and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So he went in the Sabbath on the Sabbath day, in the synagogue, all the time, trying to persuade his fellow Jews that Jesus is the Christ. When Silas and Timothy, who were his, his partners in ministry, came from Macedonia, Paul didn't have to build tents anymore, and he devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was Messiah. But when they opposed Paul, and they became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest against them and said, your blood be on your own heads. I've told you this repeatedly. Jesus is the Christ. You won't believe me? I, I just, I'd shake off my clothes. And then he said, from now on, it's a very important statement, from now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. Remember how I said that Corinth was the first Gentile church? This is how it started. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door. Now, who does that? He like, oh, fine, you don't, I'm going next door. So he just seriously just walks out and goes and knocks on a door. And he goes inside to the, to the next door neighbor's house, and he's a house of Titus Justice, a worshiper of God, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed the Lord. He goes right next door. He preaches the gospel next door to the synagogue. They believe. He goes, okay, let's start a church then. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed 
and were baptized. This is the beginning of the church in Corinth. This is how the church started. This is when the grace of God appeared in gospel form in Corinth. When we started this church, we began this church with prayer and then with proclamation. We prayed for months. We prayed for a whole year before the church started repeatedly in the city. And then when we launched the church three years ago on this Sunday, we proclaimed the gospel of Jesus. And the church has grown because of Not because of us, but because of the grace of God through prayer and the proclamation. This is how Jesus starts churches. This is how the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus arrived in Corinth. But what is grace? What is the grace of God? What were the characteristics of this grace that had arrived in Corinth through the preaching of the gospel? I say, and I just said, that the grace of God appeared in Corinth, but what is this grace? What does it look like? Second point, grace explained. For this point, I'll be using three subpoints. The first is this grace accepts. The grace of God is how God deals with humanity. The grace of God is how God deals with humanity who has essentially rebelled against his love and his law. The grace of God is how God deals with us when we don't deserve it because we have rebelled against his love and his law, we can do this. We can rebel against God in a number of ways. We can rebel against God by simply rebelling. Nothing too creative here. Living completely irreligious, an irreligious life. Being in complete control of our own lives. Many of us have lived like this or live like this currently. Living a life where we control our own fates. You don't let the power of society or religion tell you what's right and what's wrong. You choose for yourself what's right and what's wrong. Self-expression and self-discovery are true north for you. That's what guides you. That's what leads you. It's not, I don't care what religion says. I don't care what society says. It's what I feel. It's how I discover myself, how I express myself. That is my religion. You may not think too much about God. If you're in this camp, rebellious, you might not, I'm like, I don't even think twice about God. I don't really think, I don't really care. Or you may be secretly angry at God, like C.S. Lewis was before he was a Christian. C.S. Lewis was an atheist before he became a Christian. And he said this, when he was an atheist, he said, I maintain that God did not exist, and I was also very angry with God for not existing. (laughs) This captures how a lot of people feel about God. Yeah, I, I don't... God does not exist, I don't care about God, and there's, there's this angst, this anger, like, and I'm angry that he doesn't exist. I'm angry that th- the world is the way it is. Another way that you can rebel against God, not just in, in living an irreligious life, basically giving the middle finger to God, another way that you can rebel against God is a bit trickier. You can rebel against God in the church by being religious by being moral, by being legalistic. This is a person who believes that by going to church, by doing everything God wants, obeying every rule, by doing these things, you are accepted. You are the moral insiders, the ones with God's favor. And a subtlety occurs in your own heart. You actually leave God out because you have religion, because you have morality. Morality and religion are ways that you actually avoid God. You don't need a a personal relationship with Jesus. You don't need this intimate prayer time with Christ. You don't need to follow, I follow the rules. I'm moral, I obey what he says. I don't really need a relationship. 
I just do what the book says. These people are very hard to recognize. They blend into church very well. Sometimes they are the most committed. But when their world falls apart, or God does something they can't understand or they don't really agree with, they become the most bitter, self-righteous, and entitled people you've ever met. And when you start to press on why they feel this way, when you start to press in on them, the reason why, they get angry and bitter at God because God owes them. Because I've done so much for God. I've not had sex for God. I've given my money for God. I've gone to church for God. I've obeyed for God. Even I've done all these things. He owes me. You, you keep pressing on that. That's how they function. That's how they believe. There's two ways that you can rebel against God. One is by irreligion and one is by religion. Both types of people are actually alienated from God. So you can break all the rules and keep all the rules and completely miss the grace of God. You can break every rule or keep every rule and still miss the grace of God. I said that the grace of God is how God deals with humanity who has rebelled either by religion or by irreligion. This is what I mean by that. The grace of God is that God deals with us not on the basis of our merit or our worthiness, not by what we deserve, but according to his goodness and generosity. It's not based on you. It's not based on your performance, whether it's really good or really bad. It's not based on you. It's based completely on God. This makes religious people very angry. This frustrates religious people. Well, what do you mean? I'm very acceptable. I'm very worthy. They're not worthy. I am worthy. I'm doing everything God asks of humanity. I'm accepted because of my sincerity and because of my worthiness. That's why I'm accepted. And that's why this person's not accepted. And we, and we have classes of people. We have groups of people that we put outside. And the people inside are the, you know, this religious group of people that do everything that God says. Grace of God makes religious people very angry. But the grace of God makes irreligious people suspicious. It's like, whoa, wait. What do you mean I don't have to do anything to earn it? That's kind of creepy. Like, what do you mean? Like, there's nothing in life that's for free. There's got to be some kind of catch. If you're saying I don't have to do anything and it's free, I'm, I'm a little freaked out by that. It's free. It's the grace of God that comes free to us, but it came at great cost to God. 1 Corinthians 1.4, it says, Paul says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. The grace of God cost Jesus everything. This grace that we're speaking of is not cheap grace. It's costly grace. For God to treat us according to his goodness and generosity, he couldn't just wish it to happen. God couldn't just offer it to us. He couldn't just speak it into existence. And this is not a passing thought either. This is pretty important. God can speak virtually anything into existence. Hebrews says that the, word, the world was framed by the word of God. God. God spoke it and it was. And God speaks things into existence. God speaks and it happens. But he couldn't speak forgiveness into existence. He couldn't just speak grace into existence. He had to do something about it. God had to become one of us. He had to take on flesh. God had to take our place. God had to pay the penalty of our sin in Jesus Christ for our rebellion. It's called substitution. Jesus Christ took on flesh, became one of us to pay our penalty. 
that we can get all his riches and all his grace, all his love. He became poor so that you and I can become rich. This is the gospel, and this is what's called substitution, and every great storyline has a theme of substitution in it. I want you to start thinking of substitution and go rewatch all of your favorite movies. Somewhere along the line in some of the greatest movies and greatest stories ever told, there is this theme of substitution. From huge blockbuster movies and books like Harry Potter or Hunger Games or smaller movies like Looper, the theme of substitution resonates so deeply with humanity because we want it so badly to be true. Someone giving their place for me, taking my stuff, my sin, my shame, my rebellion, my brokenness, my whatever, taking all that on himself. So it's not just wiped away, but he actually deals with it in my place. And we all want it to be true. And the gospel says it is true. Jesus Christ gave himself for us. Grace has been given to you in Christ Jesus. That's what grace is. But not only does grace accept us, forgive us, cleanse us, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, just in, the, in the very opening, his greeting is packed full of theology. He says, grace not only accepts us, grace empowers us. 1 Corinthians uh, 1, uh, verse, verses 5 and 7 say this. Paul says, for in him you have been enriched in every way. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift. You've been enriched in every way, and you do not lack any spiritual gift. Not only does the grace of God bring acceptance, not only does the grace of God bring forgiveness and wholeness and the love of God to us, Paul says that the grace of God enriches. Paul says the grace of God endows us. It empowers us. The grace of God is the empowerment of God. The grace of God isn't just active when we first believe and trust in Christ. The grace of God isn't just active there. The grace of God is what equips us to live the Christian life, to be witnesses of Jesus, and the hope that Jesus Jesus brings is all grace. Paul says that the church doesn't lack any, that word spiritual gifts is the word charisma. He says the church was charismatic. Some of you guys are excited about that. So I'm like, that's what I'm saying. The church was charismatic. That's what Paul said. Like there's charisma in this church. The spirit of God makes this church come alive and you guys have gifts. Paul's saying that when the grace of God appears, the spirit of God comes alive in us and brings his life into our lives. Not just a cleansing of conscience and sin, but a repurposing of our whole lives. The spirit comes in us and awakens things in us that were not ever there before or that were there, but now he repurposes them for the spirit of God to work the purposes of Christ out in the world. Here's a quote by a a friend of mine, Gary Brashears. He says, The Spirit of God can pick up, magnify, and repurpose any abilities you may have to carry on the work of Jesus. The Spirit of God comes alive in you, and anything that you had there before that wasn't there, he makes it come alive, or he repurposes it for for the sake of the gospel. Anything at all. Or something that's not there, wasn't there previously at all. The Spirit of God will put that in for the purposes of Christ. This is what happens. The Spirit of God might even give you new gifts, gifts that you didn't even have before. When I followed, when I began to follow Christ, um, I, I don't like talking in front of people. And you guys might think that's weird. And it's very weird. I don't like standing in front of a crowd. 
I don't like, I hate doing announcements. Um, I, was, I was a nervous wreck doing baby dedication. Like, not joking. Like, when I had to walk out, I'm like, oh my gosh, how do I, what if I just say, say the wrong thing? I don't, I just don't like speaking in front of a crowd at all. It's not like my natural gift. It's a complete supernatural gift that God gave me when I began to follow him as a Christian. And I still, to this day, if I can get out of preaching, I would. <laughs> I'm not joking. Like, I'm trying to, like, work, no, no, I'm just trying to work my way out of a job, but <laughs> might get you guys nervous or maybe excited. I don't know. Um, I just don't like it, but some of you are really good communicators, and it doesn't mean that once you get saved, okay, you can't use that gift, it's natural. No. The Spirit of God will awaken that and repurpose that for the kingdom of God. You may be really good at finances. You may be really good at organization. You may be very good at, you know, playing the the piano or guitar or drums. God repurposes that. He takes the things that we're good at and he repurposes them for the gospel or he even gives us new things that we never knew we had or even sometimes he'll give us a supernatural gift that comes alive for a time for a specific purpose like the gift of healing or a word of intuition or knowledge. Some of you guys might be freaked out right now. You should be. No, I'm sure. It's really good. God's done this. I just heard this last, this, this morning, someone was completely healed of something that they've been struggling with uh, physically for a while, and God healed them. Like, God does that. God gives, and I think there is someone, I've been throwing out prayer requests recently, and then every single one of them has been being answered. I think there's, I don't know who, there's usually a group of people, someone right now has this really acute gift of faith, I think. It's really amazing to see in our church right now. Like, God is doing that, and God does that. Now, is it forever or the whole time? No, sometimes it's, it, it's, it, it could be just for a Sunday. It could be just for a time. It could be just for a season. This, the Spirit of God, what the Spirit of God does in a church is charisma. It's charismatic. It's crazy. No, it's not, that's not the interpretation. But it's, Paul's saying, this church, you don't lack anything that God wants to do. The things that God wants to do in Corinth, the church has everything it needs to do that. What Paul is saying here is that the church doesn't lack any gift that God wants to give them. It's all there. Everything God wants to do in Corinth through the church is already in the church. Preaching, worship, hospitality, knowledge, leadership, prophecy, tongues, generosity, evangelism, they're all there because of the grace of God. Paul says, Corinth, you guys have it all by the grace of God. You guys have everything you need by the grace of God. You name it, you have it. There's only one problem. The grace of God, the charisma of God was making them proud. They were walking around going, yeah, we're the smartest. We're the most knowledgeable. We have the best preaching. We have the best this. We have the best that. When we get together, it's the, it's, everyone has a tongue and, and there's interpretations flying around everywhere and it's like super charismatic in there and it's crazy. And then you walk in, it's like, God's among us. And, and, and Paul says, you know what? It's kind of making you proud. It's kind of puffing you up. Actually, the focus is not on Jesus. It's on the church in Corinth. It's about your church. It's not about Jesus. There's a problem there. And the irony that every commentator picks up on is Paul is thanking God for the very gifts that caused him the greatest grief in Corinth. He's like, I thank you that you have speech and knowledge. And the two things he's going to deal with is the way they talk and the way they think about themselves. Like, I thank God for these gifts among you, but I, need to, I, have, I have some beef, though. But I thank God he's doing that in you. But we need to correct some things. 
The very things that, that gave him the most frustration with Corinth, he begins by thanking God for them. He's thanking God for the things that he will have to correct. How can Paul do that? How can Paul thank God for the very problems that they're facing? The reason is, in the last part of grace that we see here, is grace purifies. The grace of God purifies us. Paul knew this. The grace of God doesn't just bring acceptance and forgiveness. The grace of God doesn't just bring empowerment and charisma or gifts. The grace of God brings sanctification. Sanctification is a churchy way of saying purifying. The grace of God purifies us. It makes us holy. It makes us more like Jesus. Paul, as a good pastor, can trust in the grace of God to carry the people of God through the process of sanctification. Paul can trust that the grace of God is working in this church's life to pull them along to make them more like Christ, to make them more holy, to make them more loving. And so what Paul does is he trusts this process to God. And this is what he says in verse 8 and 9. He will also keep you firm to the end. Paul was confident that the grace of God would keep the church firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus. He trusted that the grace of God would present the church in Corinth to Christ on the last day blameless, even though there's a lot to write about. He says, God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God won't stop to complete the work he has begun in, in, in their lives. God won't stop to complete the work he started in this church. God will not stop. You might have started coming to this church because of I don't know what reason. I trust that God won't stop the work that he's begun in your life. He won't stop sanctifying you. He won't stop purifying you. Are are you struggling? Let me ask you this question. Are you struggling with a particular sin today? This is a particular sin that you keep coming back to over and over and over again in your life. I want to propose to you that that is the grace of God working out in your life. You're like, what? Me struggling with sin is the grace of God? Why else would you even care? Why else would you even care that you're struggling? Why don't you just give up and go, you know, who cares if I'm struggling? Why else would you care if the grace of God wasn't calling you out, wasn't, wasn't like bringing you? Don't you want to be more like Christ? And I'm making you more like Christ. The reason why you're struggling with it is the, is the grace of God working in your life. And but you need to understand that. You need to start seeing it that way. I'm not saying everyone go, yay, I'm struggling. But let's say that that struggle is pulling us closer to Christ. That struggle is pulling us closer to the grace of God that we can see different facets of the grace of God that was previously unrealized. See, the grace of God reaches farther than your sin does. It reaches beyond your sin and has a way of pulling you back in. It reaches beyond you and pulls you back in. The grace of God is able to keep us. The grace of God is able to present every single follower of Jesus in here perfect on that day. The grace of God has a way of showing us where we're broken and wrong and then, and then leading us and changing us and transforming us. Some of us who have been walking with Jesus now for 10 years. Think about the things you were struggling with 10 years ago. Are you struggling with them today? You probably have a new set of things that you're struggling with. Why? Because the grace of God. The grace of God doesn't stop. And Paul has this eschatological view of things. He says that the grace of God will be able to present us to God perfect and complete and blameless on that day that we stand before him. 
What Paul does here is he presents a vision of the church that is completely shaped by grace. Here's a vision of the church that's completely shaped by the grace of God. It's all grace. It's grace upon grace upon grace. He says that we are given God's grace in Jesus. And then he says that we are enriched with spiritual endowments by that grace. And then he says that we stand shameless before God on that day because of grace. And he says that we are in fellowship with Jesus by this grace. It's all grace. In a way, the, the thanksgiving he does here, the very beginning, has a way of looking forward to what he'll say in, four, in chapter 4, verse 7, when he says to the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? Everything you have, you received by grace. Everything you have. Everything in this church, as we celebrate three years, though it's very young, we're so young as a church, so young, but everything in this church is by grace. The fact that I can say even a single coherent sentence about the gospel is grace. Our worship time and we spend time reflecting and taking communion is grace. Our community and then the fact that we built community groups and people are coming to those and finding community in this church is grace. The relationships, grace. Babies, grace. Marriages, grace. Repentance, grace. Baptism, grace. It's all grace. All of it. Now, we might have prepared an atmosphere for this to happen, but it's all grace. I remember one time I was at a pastor's conference, and I don't remember what the pastor taught on. I just remember his prayer. He said, Lord, I've prepared the wood. Now bring the fire. I remember hearing that. I, was, I opened my eyes. I went, that was like, I turned to my, I think it was Tim next to me or one of my friends. I went, and they, they did the same thing. looked at me like, that was probably the coolest thing that anyone's ever said in a prayer. Like, that is exactly what it is. That's what grace is. It's like, Lord, I've prepared this thing. Now, now bring, the, the, bring the fire of grace. Now, I, I can try to prepare it, but you have to fill it. Yes, I can get up here and prepare a sermon, but unless the Spirit of God does something right now, it means nothing. We can have a second set of worship and, like, play and, like, dim the lights, but that's just an atmosphere. Unless the Spirit of God comes and does something, it's nothing. And that is grace. The very fact that you're here, that you might even be hearing God right now, is grace. Grace on grace. God gave us a prophecy before we've started this church when we were living down south. And it was from John 4. And Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to send you to reap where you have not sown. There, there have been people that have gone before you that have sown, and I'm going to go, you're going to, re, you're going to enter into their labor. And when, I was, when we were praying, we really sensed that God was going to send us somewhere, we didn't know where at the time, where there's been people that have been praying and praying and praying and praying and laboring. And we're going to enter into their labor, and we don't deserve it. And we're going to reap where we, didn't, we haven't sown in years and years and years of prayer. Like people go, oh, how, how did the church, how did you guys start this church? We're like, prayer, how long did you pray? Like a year, that's nothing. There have been people that have been praying for generations for this city. It's been the grace of God that we entered into people who've been praying. And we don't say it has anything to do with the name of this church or anyone on staff or anyone leading. It's by the grace of God. This church is here. The church is here in San Francisco. The church. All the churches in the city that love Christ and are preaching Christ are here by the grace of God. 
But here's our challenge. It's the same challenge the Corinthian church was facing. Our natural tendency is to play down the challenge of the gospel and overemphasize its comfort. We live in a very therapeutic culture that loves to talk about the comforts of the gospel without the challenge of the gospel. There is a challenge. It's not to quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer, easy believism. That's not what this is. The challenge is to let the grace of God shape us, humble us, rebuke us, change us. The challenge is to receive the grace of God and go, and the things that the, the Spirit of God is illuminating by His grace, it's all grace, illuminating this, change that, forgive here, let go here, repent of that, that's wrong. Stop. Let, the, let God's grace do that. And this is why Jesus said, whoever wants to follow me must take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. But even that is grace. It's like, I don't know if I have the strength to follow Jesus. You will by grace. I want to close with this, with this prayer, this, this, this poem. O God of grace, teach me to know that grace precedes, accompanies, and follows my salvation. That it sustains the redeemed soul. That not one link of its chain can ever break. From Calvary's cross, wave upon wave of grace reaches me, deals with my sin, washes me clean, renews my heart, strengthens my will, draws out my affection, kindles a flame in my soul, rules throughout my inner man, consecrates my every thought, word, work, reaches me to your immeasurable love. Praise be to you for grace and for the unspeakable gift of Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for your grace, Lord. I pray, I, I ask God that the words that were spoken over the last several minutes, maybe put words to some things that we were feeling, that we were sensing, that the grace of God is leading us and drawing us. And as we take and move into time of communion now, God, I pray that that grace would humble us, would cause us to respond, that you would show us areas in our life where we need to turn, where we need to believe. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.